I am about 25-ish years old. I work in the labs in Craigavon Hospital, so this is very, very different to my day job and the day jobs of a lot of guys that would come up here and speak. Um, I grew up through CE, and it really is an immense privilege to come back, and every time I am invited back, it's, it is, I count it as such a joy um, to come back and be part of something that was so big and so important for my life in so many different ways. Um, and it is my hope and prayer that it's the same for each person here as well. So, before we start, I'm going to play a quick game, okay, called Name That Bible Story, okay? Now, very, very simple, okay? At first, put up your hand if you recognize it, and then tell me the story, okay? So, not both at once. At first, put up the hand, then after, tell me the story. Fairly simple, yeah, okay? Mostly blank faces, but I'm going to take that as a yes. This one, right, put up your hand if you recognize the story. Jeepers, come on, there has to be more of you. Put up your hand properly. Good, right. And then just let me know, what's the story? Perfect, okay. Noah's, Noah's Ark. There's some very questionable looking animals in that, but you get the picture, okay? It is definitely Noah's Ark, okay? Shh. Okay. Next one. I keep looking at those giraffes. I'm going to get them off the screen. Right, this one. Put up your hand if you recognize it. Okay, most people, and then shout it out, what do we have? Daniel and the lion's den, absolutely, there's Daniel. What I want to know is, do you see, do you see the lion that Daniel has? I'm very confused by the perspective of this, I don't know how deep that hole is, or whether it's like just one big long cave, but look at the, look at the concerned face, and look at the lion that Daniel has his right hand on, bless. Anyway, third one, this one, recognize the story? Yes, what is it? David and Goliath. Brilliant. Okay, look at look at that sort of look at that little flick of the wrist that David has going on there with his little coin purse. Okay, but David and Goliath, we all know the story. And then finally, this one. What do we have? Yeah? What do we have? Perfect. Feeding the five thousand, okay? So that's the end of the game. Shh. So, we had these four pictures. We had Noah, we had Daniel and Lance Dan. We had David and Goliath, and then we had Jesus feeding 5,000. So, okay, particularly in Northern Ireland, probably particularly in Portadown as well, um, you're very likely to have heard these Bible stories at some point in our lives. I would say, kind of looking out around the room, about 95%. There was very, very few hands that I didn't see go up. 95, probably close to 100% of you knew the stories of Noah, of Daniel, or David, or Jesus feeding 5,000, and maybe even more stories as well. Okay, so the passage that was read for us tonight, okay, that story kind of falls into a very, very similar, I'm going to take that off the screen, falls into a very, very similar bracket. Okay, Jesus calming the storm. This story is one of these stories that I'm sure everybody here knows at some level whether it's really well or not as well but I'm sure that you've all heard it or mostly and it's pretty easy to skip past I think without actually sort of stopping reading it slowly 
and thinking about what is going on. So firstly, remember that as we think about this story tonight, it's not a little metaphor, okay? It's not this little nice fairy tale with a good takeaway message. This is an actual historical event which did actually happen and it was written down with an actual single purpose. It was written down to help us know Jesus better and then to see our creator God more clearly. Looking to Jesus and his perfection has been described before like a mirror which would reflect back to us all of our unworthiness and sin. But if it's the real Jesus that we're looking at, then we can't actually miss the mercy and the grace and the strength which is greater than our weakness being reflected back onto us. So, how we are going to unpack this message tonight of this story is that we're going to be answering the three questions that were answered in the text. Maybe you saw them, maybe you missed them, that's okay. Have a look at the screen behind me and you can remind yourself of what they are. So firstly, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Okay, that was the question that was asked. The first question, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing. Secondly, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Thirdly, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Those three questions are asked and they're asked directly, okay? They're not kind of thrown up into the air as this rhetorical question. But you'll also see that Mark is very, very careful to not answer them in the text. Because the whole point of the book of Mark, the whole point of this gospel, is to really slowly, sort of from the ground up, build this case of who Jesus really is. The book of Mark kind of works like a crescendo in music. Quite at the start, and then absolutely loud and unavoidable at the end, kind of building throughout. Okay, first we get these very gentle, very subtle clues as to who Jesus could be. And then as we read on through the gospel, the evidence builds and builds and then it becomes greater and greater and climaxes in an almighty symphony as Jesus dies on the cross, rises in glory three days later and it's almost asking like, do you see it yet? It builds, gentle at the start, unmissable at the end. But before we get stuck into this passage, before we start to open it up and think about each little bit individually, we're going to pray. And, and the reason that we do that is People for thousands of years have read the Bible as a textbook, but we as Christians believe that it's not just a book of stuff. It's God's living, breathing, active word. So as we come to it, we want it to shape our lives. We want it to shape our hearts, to reveal to us who we really are at the core, but then also show us who Jesus really is as well and how he speaks directly to each one of us. So let's pray before we start. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is alive, that it is active, that it still speaks to us today. Father, soften our hearts. Still our minds. Let us sit for 15 minutes undisturbed and focus on your word. Speak directly to us. Let us have an encounter with the real Jesus tonight. Shape us and make us more 
like who you've made us to be, which is faithful image bearers of who you are. And it's only by your help that we can do this. We ask this in your name. Amen. So, question one. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So in my house, whenever I was back at school, as soon as it hit the first week of May, I knew that that meant only one thing. My social life all but ended. My mum, who's a teacher, if any of you have met Diane, she's something else. And anybody else whose mum here is a teacher, I'm sure you could kind of like vibe with me on it. You kind of sort of know where I'm going with this. My mum insisted that any more than a five-minute break away from textbooks and past papers was equivalent to high treason, okay? Was punishable by, at best, death, okay? The time spent standing outside purely to top up my vitamin D levels was time wasted, okay? If if I wasn't doing it while trying to learn that the proximal convoluted tubule is the main site of reabsorption in the kidney. Any friends I had who I probably don't have anymore, that had their birthdays around that time, I never got to go because I had to revise. Any CE events that happened, I could go for half an hour tops and then I had to leave to get back to studying. Any end of year events in school that happened were missed unless it was like an end of year study class. And so all of this oppression would build up and up over time to the point where I would just eventually snap at my mum and yell, Diane, which is her name, okay? Do you even care about me? Do you even care about me? Or words to that effect. Has anyone here ever actually been in the same position? Now, bear in mind that I said that to her wearing the clothes that she had bought me in the house that I lived in for free, never having paid for bills or food, and probably having just been at a tutoring session that she paid for as well. And yet, I still asked if she even cared about me. The American pastor, T.J. Timms, describes this situation that our passage opened up with tonight by saying that without any doubt, the disciples are the only people at that time on planet Earth who we could say, completely believing 100% that it is true they are the only people at that time who are being absolutely obedient to God's will. Those people are being absolutely obedient to God's will. We can say that without any doubt. How do we know that? Verses 35 and 36 tell us that Jesus says to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they, that is the disciples, took him with them in the boat just as he was. Jesus, the creator God in human flesh, fully God and fully man, says to his friends, let's go to the other side of that lake. Jesus, who is omniscient, okay, omniscient, that means that he knows everything. And Jesus, who is omnipotent, okay, omnipotent, that means he has power over everything, Jesus says to his friends, come out onto the water, let's cross this lake, and then he gets into the boat along with them. Now, ask yourself this. Do you find it strange that if Jesus knows everything, then surely he would have known that a storm is coming? Jesus would have known that the life that he had at that time and the life of his friends would be in great peril. Why would Jesus even suggest 
that the disciples then go across a lake if he knew that this would happen because he did know that it would happen. Verses 37 and 38. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, that is Jesus, was asleep on the cushion and they, the disciples, woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? It's quite interesting as well. Think about the question that they that the disciples asked Jesus it's not Jesus do you not see that our boat is sinking okay it's not Jesus do you not feel the water lapping up against the side of your face while you're catching 40 winks on the floor no they actually go just straight for the jugular they go right after the character of Jesus they say do you not care did Jesus in some sort of weird and twisted way lead his friends into a difficult situation that he knew would arise just so he could like panic them and and freak them out a wee bit of course not jesus calling his friends to follow him out onto the waters where a storm would come is exactly the reason that we knew that jesus cared jesus himself was in the boat with them He could have sent them out from the shore and just waved them goodbye. Jesus came out into the place of danger alongside with, in community with, the people that he called to follow him. That is how we know exactly that Jesus cared. Philippians chapter 2 opens this idea up for us a wee bit more in that Jesus came to earth to be in and among us, okay, to live a life of service toward us, to put himself in the positions that we find ourselves in so that he could demonstrate his love toward us. Where the disciples' questioning went is usually the first place that we can go as well. When we know difficulty, when we know confusion about the direction that our lives may take when we can see social unrest and injustice when we have no peace in our hearts when we're reminded of death which will come to us all whether or not you even know or follow jesus or know god and live a life to please him is that not usually a question that would appear somewhere at the start the first time that bad things happen God, Jesus, do you just not care? Do you just not care? Do you not care, Jesus, about the radical shift and how churches seem to be abandoning the Bible's teaching and sort of changing everything to be more socially relevant, whatever that is? Do you not care, Jesus, about how Christians nearly have to walk on eggshells now in every situation for fear of being called transphobic or a bigot or sexist? Jesus, do not care that I'm continually slipping further and further into sin with no sense or ability to pull myself out of it? Jesus, do you not care about social injustice, about sickness, about illness, about death? Jesus, do you not care that we're perishing? What does the broader picture of the Bible tell us? How does the wider God's word answer such a difficult and pointed question of Jesus, do you not care? Let's not stick just to this story. Let's sort of go
go a bit further out, um, let's see if this theme of Jesus actually caring is consistent with the rest of the Bible. Okay, Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve have just dis- disobeyed God and broken his law. Did God care that his creation has slipped into sin and would perish and be separated from him forever? He did care. Because in the next breath, God promised an offspring of Eve who would crush the head of Satan. That is Jesus. God promised someone who would defeat the tempter that led Adam and Eve astray that they broke God's law. He had every right to be mad at them. And yet he says, no, I care. I will fix this. The book of Ruth that we studied this year at Livewire, did God not care that his people had turned their backs on him completely as we read in Judges and all the horrible, horrible things that are talked about in that book? Of course he cared. Through this Moabite woman regarded socially as a prostitute and an outcast, God brings the line of King David, Israel's greatest king, and then it's through this family that Jesus is then born. This Jesus who would save his people from perishing in sin. Okay, Old Testament, check. New Testament, is there any explicit example that God cared about us while we were perishing? Yes, Ephesians 2, while we're dead in trespasses and sins, unable to do anything for ourselves other than float along lifeless like corpses on a riverbed. Further and further into sin, God, before time began, before anything had started, God set you aside and said, you're mine. God cared enough to lift you out of sin, despite you not being able to do anything to be in any way worthy of being saved. He cared Romans 5, while we were still sinners, not just perishing, but direct enemies of God, what did he do? Send Jesus to live perfectly and then die the death that we deserved for us. Before we even knew who Jesus was, he came and lived and bled and died for you. Let's ask the same question again as the disciples teacher. Do you not care that we're perishing? Do you not care that we're dead in sin? What do we see? You see that Jesus cares. Jesus cares about you and your situation. When the Holy Spirit reveals to you your helplessness, just like the disciples had revealed to them at that time, you are invited to come running to Jesus and ask for the unfathomable, unfathomable and inexplicable supernatural grace and mercy and strength which is found nowhere else. Question two. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The word still here, I think, is kind of key to unlocking this meaning behind Jesus' question. Have you still no faith? He could have just asked, have you no faith? Have you still no faith? Why does Jesus say this? Mark chapter 1. Jesus has called people to follow him and then he goes on to heal a man who's demon-possessed where the demon recognizes Jesus as, quote, the Holy One of God. The demon recognizes that Jesus has authority over spiritual things. Then after this, Jesus shows his power over physical things as well by healing Mary and a leper and a paralytic. Mark chapters 2 and 3. More pictures of Jesus doing the unimaginable, healing a man with a withered hand, teaching on God's law and correcting the religious elite and experts of the day on issues such as fasting and Sabbath, things that these guys thought they knew everything about Jesus completely schooled them. 
Mark chapter 4, Jesus teaches with such deep wisdom unseen before on the workings of God and the parable of the sower and the lamp under a basket and the parable of the mustard seed. And his authority, his authority is recognized by everyone who can hear him. And everyone who was there was amazed at who this guy Jesus is. So having lived through all of this, the disciples run to Jesus on a sinking ship in the middle of a storm and ask him the question that we looked at previously, do you not care? Then Jesus gets up and tells the weather to stop and it obeys. Jesus has done incredible, unexplainable things already before this point. It's evidenced in the lives of, that he has met so far and yet, the disciples still are amazed at what Jesus can do. After seeing and hearing everything that they've heard so far, you would think that they wouldn't or nearly shouldn't be surprised at Jesus' actions. Also, it is worth maybe asking as well, the disciples asked Jesus to intervene in their situation by poking, as I said, right at the heart of what he came to do, which is serve and seek and save and then When Jesus did the thing that they asked for, they were amazed. Nearly feels as if this was like a Hail Mary attempt by the disciples, sort of the last shot at saving themselves. This complete hope stab in the dark, hope for the best because they were going to die anyway. So it might be worth a go asking them. And yet, coming to Jesus is the only thing. Coming to Jesus is the only thing that could have saved them at that time. The question of, have you still no faith? Jesus asks to the disciples, let that sit in your head right now. Think about it. Have you still no faith? Do you hear of the stories and see incredible, sort of undeniable changes in the lives of people who come to follow Jesus, but then you may doubt that he could ever do the same thing for you? Are you scared to ask Jesus to work in your life in ways that can't actually you can't actually put into sentences, be it sort of personally or more broadly, because you aren't actually sure that he can do that thing that you need, or are you scared that he might actually do it? you come to Jesus, if you hold him to the promises that he came to fulfill, which is care for and love those who need him and bring them into right relationship with God the Father so that he works in their life to be glorified to all those around him, you will see that happen. You will see God glorified in your life through whatever situations may arise from that. Trust that completely because Jesus will do it. It's nothing to be afraid of. You will never be left worse off by it. If you long for knowing peace that passes understanding and you've tried every other way to find it you can possibly get your hands on, if you've searched for purpose everywhere else and you're still searching, come to Jesus. He cares that you're perishing. He cares that you're slipping into sin. He cares that your life may look like an absolute, unrecoverable mess? Or have you still no faith? 
Question three. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So we're going to close with this third and final question. You've all listened brilliantly so far. Who is this man that speaks to nature and that obeys him? Anyone can speak to nature. Anyone can yell at the wind. But whenever this guy does it, it actually obeys him. In this story of a near-death experience, the disciples' emotions are only ever explicitly mentioned once. Okay? The disciples' emotions are only ever mentioned once in this story of lads on a boat in a storm. It is never a feeling of excitement or fun as they head out for a boy's trip on a boat. It is never a feeling of nausea as the waves rock the boat back and forth and they're going to see the dinner again. It is not a feeling of impending doom and panic as a storm swells up around them. When the storm has ended and the danger has passed, what does verse 41 tell us? Mark 4 verse 41. The disciples are filled with great fear. The danger is over. The danger is over and they are filled with fear. Think about that. Why? What are they scared of? Who are they scared of? As the Christmas carol reminds us, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see they're frightened at Jesus and what he can do and his power and authority. The living God who has existed from before time started and will live on after time has finished. The living God who by his Holy Spirit hovered over the formless earth and spoke it into existence. The living God who made himself human like you and me to live a life that we are living. The living God who did not become any lesser by coming to earth in terms of his majesty and authority and kingship as shown so far in the gospel of Mark. They were frightened by the power of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Frightened by the power that he had over creation. Following Jesus does, not might, not could. Following Jesus does lead you on the stormy waters. But that is the only place that Jesus is able to show just how much he cares for you, even though you may not have complete faith that he would even do it. And that is genuinely frightening. Because when things happen in ways that we could never imagine, they show us that it's only by God's power that the change in that can happen. And we should be like, whoa. And we should feel a bit uneasy and a wee bit scared. And that's okay. But there is no other way that we can know that Jesus is Lord. When your life is changed in ways that you cannot deny God's intervening hand. When the Bible is opened and when the Bible is faithfully taught, when the Holy Spirit works within you to open your eyes and see the character of God revealed through the person of Jesus, it will pierce your heart in just the right spot, like a scalpel in the hand of a surgeon. And you are left with no doubt 
about who this man is. Knowledge of God leads to knowledge of self. This passage does not just show us the power of God through the person of Jesus, but it also shows shows us who we are in light of that. By the very last question the disciples ask, they want to know just who is this man that they've devoted their lives to following. As we follow Jesus daily, as we ask him to work within us, we will never stop asking that same question. And yet, as we see more and more of what he's like, we become so much more acutely and fine-tuned in our awareness of who we are as people, as his created people. Jesus shines a light into the darkest corner of our hearts to show us the mess that is still there, whether we want to admit it or not. He shines the light in, he looks at it, and still says, come to me. And I will give you what? Not a challenge or five-step guide on how to be a better person. Not vague clues on how to handle this season. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. If you want to know Jesus, if you have any inkling or question or thought in your head tonight about who is this man that this guy at the front has been talking on about, please find somebody and ask those questions. If you have any questions, please ask them. That is a good thing. Please don't leave tonight without having asked those questions because I absolutely believe that it is so, so vital and genuinely important and it's the most important thing that you could do in your life. Gilly, Joy, John, Nicole, Henry, Maddie, Andrew, Peter, anyone who's a leader here, any of those guys would love to chat to you about Jesus. If you can't find them or even have no idea who they are and what they look like, find a mate who's a Christian and ask them. Or if you're really desperately stuck and scraping through the bottom of the barrel, come and find me. Nothing would make me happier than having a conversation with you about this. Now to him, then who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray to finish and then the band will come up. Father, thank you that your word shows us Jesus so clearly. Thank you that it does open heart surgery on each and every one of us to show us who we are. But then we're not just left broken and confused, but you remedy that by showing us the goodness and grace and and mercy and healing and fixing and joy and rest that is found in Christ. Work within us to to make Jesus real to each and every single person here tonight. Help us get to know Jesus in a deep, 
and intimate way. Change us, Lord, to, to reflect that in our lives, that as we get to know him and we get to know you, that we would start to look like your children. Because we can't do it by just trying hard and doing our best at things that we think are important. Let the power of Jesus work within our life and help us to not be scared to let it work. But rather, Father, shape us and mold us into the vessels that you want us and choose to use us as. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.